That would be wonderful. So uh, we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 57. So if you could turn there with me, we're going to be starting in verse 14. And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for the spirit would grow faint before me, and the breath of life that I made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Can you pray with me, please? God, help us this morning as we look at your word to understand amazing truths about who you are. Help us understand difficult truths about who we are. Above all, Lord, I pray that your word would rise up before us. It would would rise up in our hearts and it would rule over feelings, emotions, idols that, that distract us from you. Take this word that we see, Lord. Take this promise that we see of healing. And help us to fall in love with it. So, Lord, prepare our hearts to receive what you would have us to say. Lord, may I not be impressive in any way this morning, but may you be glorious through this beautiful gift that you've given us of redemption because of your great holiness. Help us, Lord. We need you. We love you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If that's too small up on the slide there, I apologize. We're, we're going to be going through the passage pretty much verse by verse today. Uh, so if you have your Bible, you can look there and I'll make sure to bring out those points that are on the slide. Um, Mark asked me not long ago to preach, uh, and when he did, there were a couple of of passages that I was debating on, and this one is something that I read a while ago in my personal time in the the Word, uh, and was blown away by it. 
not many of us have the opportunity or, or the, the privilege of hearing God speak as clearly to us as he may, I may be speaking with you right now, uh, but through his word, he reveals very clearly to our hearts uh, the, the, the truth and the hope that we need. And, and this is what this passage did for me when I read it. It was just amazing as I saw uh, the promise that God gives to us uh, in this passage. Uh, and I want to share it with you today because I was, I was like a kid on Christmas morning who was just totally excited about what he got for Christmas. I want you to be excited like Christmas morning today, okay? So uh, if nothing else, chew on this, this promise. Chew on this passage because it is amazing. The, uh, the main point today that I want to drive home is, is this. This is actually going to be like the, the purpose statement this morning uh, or, you know, sermon in a sentence, if you will. Uh, the holiness of God is the healing power of the gospel. As I've grown as a, a follower of Christ, as I've grown as a disciple, I'm going to be honest, I've struggled at times to, to really, truly understand what is it that I need to do to grow, to, to love God, to, to really cherish who Jesus is and what He does for me. And, and frankly, it's true for me, and maybe it is for, for most of us, that there have been many times through my life where my effort is what I rely on to try to just push myself into loving God. And it's a horrible failure <laughs> every time. But what I want to show you today is this, that it's the holiness of God that is the healing power of the gospel. It's not effort. It's not uh, listening to, to sermons on tape. It's not podcasts or uh, the next great book. It's God's holiness. Um, and that is necessary for us. So I want to start off because, you know, we want to define our terms, right? So when, when I say holiness, God's holiness is the healing power of the gospel, I want to explain to you what I mean, why his holiness is the healing power of the gospel. God's holiness is his infinite supremacy of God over all things in all ways. Supremacy is being high above anything, supremely better, supremely good, perfectly good in every way. The holiness of God is his infinite supremacy over everything. That means forever. That means to the greatest extent, God's love is infinitely above any love you could ever experience because it is greater and lasts longer and goes farther and is more loving than any love you have ever known. God's goodness is infinitely supreme, infinitely good because it's better than the goodness that any of us have ever experienced. And it promises more to us. 
it's because of His infinite supremacy. God Himself being infinitely supreme over all things in our lives that creates this change agent for us when it comes to the Gospel. We know that holiness means to to be set apart. And we'll see in this passage that God clearly sets Himself apart from the things that we can often give ourselves to, even on a daily basis. God will call us in this passage to abandon empty promises from things that are not Him, that are not Christ. And He'll call us to find that His promises are enough for us. So I want to share with you a story because, again, my my life, I've been growing and just this passage really resonated with me as I've learned what this really means. Um, Mark had mentioned it not too long ago, actually. Probably when I was about 14 or 15 years old, uh, there was just a whole lot going on in my life. And through the, the separation and divorce of my parents, through other things that were not, uh, not comfortable <laughs> by any means, uh, I really longed for something to fill the need that I saw in my life. Um, I was pretty close to my grandfather uh, during this time before I knew the Lord, right before I knew the Lord. Both of, uh, two of my grandparents died. So uh, at one point when my mother and I were going through some of my grandfather's things, I stumbled upon a book. It was not the Bible. It was a book that he used to collect quotes, sayings, proverbs, anecdotes from Reader's Digest, from newspapers, from other, other things. Uh, and I, I just like muckled onto it. I was... I was enthralled with this because it had wisdom. And it had more wisdom than I'd received from anybody else. I'd seen psychologists and counselors, and they just told me, well, you just need to work on this and that. This book gave me little tidbits that I could remember, things to hold on to, helpful pieces of advice. So what I did, I memorized it. I wrote more stuff into it. I started my own little book. I took stuff out of this book and I put it in my book and I used that as my Bible. The way that you and I might read through our Bibles today, I read through this book. I added to this book. Uh, I gave friends advice from this book. I knew exactly what page to go to to give them the quote that they needed. And friends of mine used to invite me to come to youth group. And I'd say, no, uh, I don't need Bible thumpers telling me what to do. In fact, I felt that really the Bible, the only use for the Bible for me was to prove it wrong. But as time went on, I would actually take from other world religions the wisdom and the knowledge that people had that, that I think worked well for me. And I created my own thing. And again, I gave advice to friends. I, I would help them. And they, would, they were so thankful. <laughs> so bad. But the pain in my life didn't stop. 
the challenges and the difficulty didn't necessarily get worse, but by the grace of God, I saw it more clearly. My brother started coming to this youth group because a friend of his invited him to come here. My brother started inviting me to come to this youth group. And I politely told him no. I didn't want Bible thumpers telling me what to do. Um, In Wyndham High School, I would sit close to a table where there were a, a group of praying students. Because where else was I going to get my ammo to discredit the Bible? I had to listen to Christians. Brent Roberts, you might know him, he's uh, Heath's brother. Uh, He would confront me after lunchtime, after they were praying, and he would say, you can join us if you want. I was like, no, this is not for me. I'm just going to stand or sit nearby and listen if that's okay with you. And this went on for a while. He eventually informed me that they were praying for me. And I don't remember hearing him do that. (laughs) But they were. And I thought, That's fun. Yeah, that's nice. Um, I don't want that. God did something pretty miraculous, though. Because in all of my curiosity to find how to discredit the Bible and find wisdom in other places, I was watching televangelists on TV. They are heretical. They were heretical. But God piqued my interest. And I started to hear about something called sin. And I could not describe the transformation that happened inside me when I started to understand the emptiness, the pain, the struggle. Why do I feel guilty about this and that and this other thing? I had no source. Trust me when I say this, that it was not coming from other world religions. It wasn't coming from anywhere else. I had no other source that told me that certain things, certain attitudes, certain beliefs that I had were wrong. But by the grace of God, he got my attention. So I decided to shut my brother up one night and come here. And my plan was to come once so he would stop asking and not return. See how much good that did me, right? That night, Mark shared the beauty of gracious acceptance in Christ. I hadn't known that from anyone. I found it in that mobile unit right out back that used to be there. Excuse me. That night, Brent led me to Christ and helped me to understand what I'd been longing for. And I didn't, didn't turn back. God helped me to see that his supremacy 
over everything that I had given myself to made those things pale in comparison to his holiness and greatness, to his love, to his acceptance, the fullness that I could experience in forgiveness in Christ was glory. So today, when I tell you that the holiness of God is the change agent for the gospel, it's the healing power of the gospel, we're going to look in his word into a place that lit up for me when I read it and and just preaches hope, preaches acceptance, preaches something beyond what most would expect from God, especially in the Old Testament, right? Because the Old Testament is where God judged people. The New Testament is where God accepted people. That's kind of how people think the, the Bible works. Life has been a journey since then, learning how to grow as a disciple of Christ. I've learned that life consists of continual and often moment-by-moment submission to this, I'm going to coin a phrase perhaps, the enoughness of God over everything else in my life that promises life and comfort. The last thing I want you to walk away with this morning is that I told a good story. The first thing I want you to walk away with this morning is this joy of the transformative power of the holiness of God when he comes to you, when he meets you where you are. Let's go back uh, to Isaiah 57 because God introduces us to some problems that Israel was having. Uh, There is a, a problem with idolatry. And Israel is straying away from God as their king. And and their kings are straying away from God as their king. Um, Go backwards in Isaiah 57 from, from verse 14. Let's go backwards to verse 10. Israel had begun to focus on other pursuits, other things that would make them happy. Uh, Their kings would do the same thing. They started to stray and to find acceptance in other nations as opposed to being God's chosen people, accepted and, and used and righteous. Verse 10 says, You were wearied in the length of your way, but you did not say it is hopeless. You found new life for your strength, and so you were not faint. He spends, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but 57, 1 through 9, he's talking about, you did this, and you did this, and you gave yourself to this. And he starts off here in verse 10, after all these things, you were tired. You were wearied with the length of your way, but you did not say it is hopeless. So when I say there's a problem with idolatry, that's what it is. You did not say it is hopeless. He said you found life for your strength and you were not faint. Israel and many people today look at pursuits in life to make them happy and say, because of my effort, 
because of the time I've put into this, because of everything I've done, there's worth. Look at the energy I've put into this. Look what I've done. And that is where we find strength. Idolatry isn't just bowing down to some wooden carved thing and worshiping it. Idolatry is believing the lie that something other than God has more to offer than God himself. Verse 11 says, Whom did you dread and fear so that you lied and did not remember me, did not lay it to heart? Idolatry is a a lie that God is not good enough. We might think of idolatry as some big things that people can do. Pornography. Stealing. Lying. Idolatry is big sins. But when we understand that idolatry is simply accepting wrongly, that something else has more to offer than God does, we're challenged to consider the expectations that we put on everyday things. So I have a question for you. What is it when it doesn't meet your expectations that really upsets you or causes you to more passionately and diligently pursue that thing? I'm going to ask you the question again. What is it when it doesn't meet your expectations that drives you, I'm sorry, that upsets you or drives you to more diligently pursue that thing which didn't meet your expectations? This is an indication that there is an idol ruling in our hearts. And I'm just going to recommend to you that all of us have something like this going on. There are many things that we pursue that maybe even aren't inherently bad. But there are many things we think are serving us to make us happy. But the truth is that we are serving them. God's promise to us in that is that these idols will let us down. So if there's any hope in someone saying there's no hope, this is it. Because in verse 12, well, Let's look at the end of verse 11 first. God says, Have I not held my peace even for a long time and you do not fear me? He's saying, I've been patient. I'm waiting. And you still don't come to me. Verse 12 says, I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. The wind will carry them all off and a breath will take them away. God is saying that that our idols, the things that we give ourselves to to make us happy, are as strong as tissue paper in a hailstorm. Because it, it doesn't last. 
It's not going to, to, to please you. It's not going to, to uphold you. It's not going to provide you with the strength that you think it might. It will let you down. And again, when it lets you down, do you strongly pursue it all the more? Are you sorely disappointed? Are you, are you angry because of it? That's what an idol is. God is patient in the midst of this pursuit that we have of, of trying to find things that make us happy. He said, have I not held my peace even for a long time? That's just... We don't expect a holy, righteous God who could wipe us off the face of the earth with a thought to wait for us as we walk away in rebellion to him. It's just counterintuitive. But he's, he's just telling us right here, it's so gracious, I'm waiting for you. After this, God now just goes full bore into declaring great hope. He says, He who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. The people of Israel at this time were not only just pursuing idols, but there were some who longed to come back to the land that God had promised them. And he's, he's saying to them, You will return. But he's also saying to them, more than just a land, more than just a home, you're going to return to me. So in verse 14, he says, it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. He's clearing a path, a wide road for his people to return, not just to a home, not just to a kingdom, not just to a king, but himself. Verse 15, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. So I'm going to stop there for just a moment. Because we might expect that if God is going to give us hope and tell us he's going to redeem us, that he's going to say, okay, you're horrible, dirty, rotten human beings, but I will heal you. And we want it straightforward like that. And then we say, okay, what are you going to do, God? But God leads with his holiness. He doesn't just say, I'm going to heal you, and this is how he leads with his holiness. I dwell in the high and holy place. This is where this healing power of the gospel is the holiness of God comes from. Because watch this. In verse 15, when he says, I dwell in the high and holy place. I am holy, he says, and also with him who is a, of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly. So that's that spiritual math equation that I did right there. Okay? What he's saying, I am holy. And 
I dwell with the humble. And the purpose of that, the way, the flow of this statement is, I am holy, I dwell with the humble, and I dwell with the humble to give them healing. It's a direct connection to the holiness of God through which he provides that healing that we need. Do you see that? I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. I am holy plus I dwell with the humble equals revival, equals healing. I'm not talking like tent revivals from down south and everyone dancing around. I'm talking revival of your heart. I'm talking revival of your thoughts and attitudes, healing, changing that 180 that we see him talk about in Scripture where he creates the new man. That is how he does it. His holiness dwelling with sinful, wandering, rebellious children. Earlier on, we saw God is patient with us, and even while we are going astray after many things, um, God is waiting. But he, he goes even further, because he says, I wait, I wait, I wait, I'm patient, but it will end. And if God says, but this will end, maybe we'd expect God's going to say, like a parent. How many of you guys, as parents have gone to your children and said, okay, you know what, uh, you've, you've, like, I gave you one chance, I gave you a second chance, strike three, you're out. Yeah? Oftentimes as parents, that's like, okay, I need to be patient, but I need to be a disciplinarian and lay down the law. And that is right, okay, so good. But God says... I've waited, I'm patient, but in verse 16, I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for the Spirit would grow faint before me in the breath of life that I made. We might say, strike three, you're out, that's it, I'm done, time out in a spanking. God says, I've waited one, two, three, four chances, and then my anger will end. I'm going to fix it. Not chance after chance, and then you're gone. Chance after chance, and I'm taking over, he says. I will fix it. I will heal How amazing is that? Just, I mean, (laughs) that's incredible. God's not just patient. God is taking the solution on, and he's saying, you know what, as dirty as you are, as horrible, as just broken as you are, I'll take care of it. I will not contend forever. 
God, God is jealous for our hearts. He wants us to find that He's amazing. Verse 17 is the part that we won't like. So look at that with me for a sec. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. Reality is that God will discipline us. God will allow us to pursue other things. Turn to Psalm 81 if you could. It's not comfortable to see that God might actually be willing to give us over to the things that we think are going to make us happy, but he will. It's obviously without, not without hope. But in Psalm 81... Starting in verse 11, he says, But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me, so I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue, <clears throat> would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe toward him and their fate would last forever. But he would feed you with the finest of the wheat and with honey from the rock I would satisfy you. That's, that's like when Jesus looked upon Jerusalem and said, Oh, would that I would gather them like a hen under my wings. Right? God longs for His children to cherish the fact that He is enough beyond any other thing. But sometimes we won't have it. Sometimes we would prefer to pursue other things to make us happy. Oh, we're not in. I've got to go back to Isaiah. Hop on back to Isaiah with me real quick. I almost just preached out of the rest of Psalm 81. So let's go back to Isaiah 57 and then everything will make sense. <laughs> The next part, after we see God hid his face, God was angry, he says, but he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. God says, I, I was angry, I, I, I brought discipline, I let him do what he wanted, and I, was, I pulled myself away, and really the, the, the reality of our sin and idolatry is that we pull away from him. And then he, he says, he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. We're stubborn people. <laughs> we're, we're stubborn sinners. And we're just going to keep going. I was reading um, a sermon by Thomas Chalmers called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. 
And one of the things, as he starts the sermon off, he's making observances about the nature of humanity. And I'm not going to do the old English words thing, but I'll just tell you what he says is the nature of our hearts is that we want to be happy, we want to be satisfied, and we're going to keep pursuing things that will make us happy. And the nature of the things around us, because they're not eternal, is that they'll let us down, and so we'll pursue something, and we'll get bored of it, and we're going to pursue something else. Or we'll pursue that thing even more. So the nature of our hearts, the nature of idolatry, is that I'm just going to keep trying till something makes me happy. That's what this means. He went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go on believing the lie. Even though, like he said in verse 10, I, I got weary of going this way and I did not say it is hopeless. Even though God is not helping me do this, I am... I'm living for my own pleasure. I'm living for my own comfort. I'm living for my own satisfaction. I'm going to keep trying. Even though God says, I'm going to help you. I'm going to heal you. But what did he say earlier? What is the result of of pursuing our idols, of pursuing attitudes and emotions that lie to us and tell us that God is not enough? The result is tissue paper in a hailstorm. It will not support you. It will not strengthen you. It will not give you the hope. It will not give you the healing that you're hoping for. John Piper, uh, several years ago, I heard, I was listening to a sermon in which John Piper said this. He asked a question. What is it that will make you the happiest for the longest period of time? If God does not give it to you, he doesn't love you. That sounds like a pretty powerful, like, watch out, John Piper, where you step. But his conclusion was that God, in his infinite love for you, will only give himself to you to keep you happy forever. God's desire for you is that your joy, that my joy would be in Him for eternity and not the things that were never made to keep us happy forever. And it's because of His love for us that God provides Himself to us even though we run after other things. We do a really good job of seeking those things out, things that might make us happy. And like I said before, sometimes we're, we can be tempted to think that idolatry is big stuff. But one of the things that, that by the grace of God, I've been able to learn over the years is that idolatry is the subtle things too. It always starts in a subtle way before it ever, if it ever, turns into more noticeable forms or unacceptable forms that we might frown upon. Sometimes it hides just below the surface of an otherwise perfect life. Perfect life, in quotations. How do we act when things don't meet our expectations? 
We don't ever blatantly tell God that He's not pulling through for us, but we act that way. What's the thought that goes through your head when your spouse or your child is being difficult in your opinion? What's the attitude that drives a rolling of the eyes or a sigh? Is it an attitude that's not happy with God's sufficiency in every situation? Is it an attitude that's justifying your righteousness? You could live an entire life and not struggle with compulsive lying, pornography, theft, whatever it may be. But we can live entire lives that are looking great on the outside and, and seething below the surface, just staying be- below the, the view of any other person around us is an attitude that puts us on the throne. The things in our lives that let us down, the things in our lives that even challenge us sometimes, are things that are not meant to make us happy forever. They are either things through which we can enjoy the goodness of God or opportunities that give us an opportunity to enjoy the goodness of God and say no to our idolatry. God impressed me, has impressed me over several years about this idea that God loves us in every single way and He is deeply involved in every little area of your life. Every little area of your life. And that's why I I can't help sometimes but to wonder and, and hope by the grace of God that He gives me the insight to think through what is the attitude that drives some of the things that most people would look at and say, eh, He's having a bad day. I like to tell our teenagers when I'm teaching them on Wednesday nights repeatedly. God is is deeply involved in every tiny area of your life. And He always only wants what's best for you. Do we believe that? We have been gradually seduced into a mindset that doesn't consider God's role in even the most simple of things or the most mundane areas of our lives. There are two ways in which sometimes this will manifest itself. And I called one license and the other moralism. License is where we can take control over areas of our lives that seem inconsequential, that seem like they don't really matter in the big picture. And we say, I can handle this. The less acceptable forms of of this would be blatant sin that most of us would disapprove of if we saw it publicly. 
but it can look like forgetting to pray before making an important decision. It can look like not considering the attitude behind an eye roll or a sigh, and then justifying ourselves instead of seeking forgiveness for those attitudes. Another more dangerous thing is moralism because it hides so well. Maybe it's more deceptive. As good Christians, we can become really aggressive with fighting sin, but not aggressive enough in our pursuit of Christ's supremacy over those sins, over the idols that we serve. We will desire that other people see us the way that we want to be seen, and we'll take control of our, ho- our holiness for ourselves, all the while sounding contrite and humble because we're broken over our sin, but we stop there, and we don't fight to dive deeply into the knowledge of what it means to seek our significance and identity in what Christ has done for us and what God says about who we are. We don't seek our importance or our identity in who God says we are, but instead in our performance and how well we do, or perhaps even how well we can hide. So, I can stop here, and I can give you five ways to pray before Sunday. Five ways to repent before you get to church. And that would be a complete and utter disservice to you. Because we'd be ignoring the grand hope that comes next. So smile. Because look at what what he says here in Isaiah 57. Verse 17, because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. This is the Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 of the Old Testament. This is, you've done nothing. This is the, you can't bring anything to the table, but there is amazing hope because I am the one, God says, who will bring healing and grace and forgiveness to you. He kept on backsliding in the way of his own heart. And he he just continued to pursue. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. Are we longing for healing? When I read this, my heart just jumped. Because I don't have to do it on my own anymore. I don't have to try anymore. I don't have to work hard. I do have to work hard, but it's not up to my work. God doesn't look at my effort, like Mark says, and say, yes, okay, the stamp of approval is on you because you've done really well. He says, I will heal you. And and then, I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, 
creating the fruit of the lips. God creates in us what he demands from us. He heals us and he creates fruit of the lips. He creates praise and worship. Turn uh, to Luke, please. We're going to look at Luke chapter 6. I didn't put a bookmark there, so I'll probably get there when you do. Luke chapter 6, verse 43. Jesus says, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of the evil treasure, his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. One of my favorite passages is where God says, the thief, uh, he's going to bring change. The thief will no longer break in and steal, but instead will, will seek how to use his resources to bless others. That's a huge paraphrase. Okay? <laughs> but the point is that God brings the healing. God brings the change. God creates praise inside of our hearts because his desire is that we would find his enoughness, his holiness, his supremacy over all things in all ways becomes the treasure of our hearts. When you hear anyone say, treasure Christ, that's what they're talking about. I struggled for years, to know how do I treasure Christ. It's because of this expulsive power. Expulsive means to shoot out, to get rid of. The expulsive power of God's holiness as a new affection. Those affections are the, the, the desires, the things that cause us to chase after stuff. And when it's his holiness that expels other affections, that expels other desires and wants in our hearts, this is the healing we get. God says that he will restore comfort to even to the mourners. He said, I'll restore comfort to him and his mourners. And earlier I said that there are those, there were those in Israel who longed for the kingdom again, who longed for Israel to be restored and for Israel's people to be faithful. 
And there are those of us today who long for others to come to know Jesus. Who long for family members or friends to return to the Lord. The promise still stands for all of us that God will do the work to restore us. Sometimes, uh, this, is, this is something from Paul David Tripp. Sometimes God will take you and I where we don't want to go in order to accomplish within us what we can't do on our own. The challenges that we face in life, the pain that we experience when things let us down, the circumstances that don't go our way whether it's a job, whether it's family circumstances or uh, finances and other things. God will take us where we do not want to go in order to accomplish in us what we can't do on our own. This work we cannot do on our own. It's Him who will do it for us. A heart that isn't changed cannot truly worship God and bear good fruit. It can pretend, but it won't get anywhere. He concludes in Isaiah 57. It's one page off there. Okay. Saying, peace, peace to the far and to the near and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Peace to the far and to the near. Peace to those who are far from me. Peace to those who are close. God's desire is to to bring reconciliation to our relationship with Him. I, uh, I work in retail. Sometimes way more than I want to. Uh, and in retail, you get to see the finest of the human nature uh, that is out there. But also some of the most depressing Uh, when I was preparing for the sermon, a gentleman came into our store who everybody in the store hates. How many of you guys have ever had something like that happen to you? Um, When he comes in, people are disgusted with the way of life that he very obviously has chosen. When he comes in, people avoid him. People run away and hope someone else can help him. I helped him one day because I was the last one standing out there. I'll admit it. (laughs) It struck me suddenly. Part of my job is that I am obligated to help people with 
not just delegated to help people, but to help people with the things that they're they're having trouble with regarding their technology, their cell phones and their tablets and things like that. Access to the internet where very uh, unacceptable things can happen, if I can put it that way. Uh, so I was helping him try to figure something out. And it's understandable. I'm not going to go into details, but I think maybe you can get what I'm, what I'm saying. He's doing things with his phone that are horribly, horribly sinful, just like simple things like lying to your parents, okay? So everything's equal. But I was suddenly struck with this. God says, peace to the far and to the near. I long for hope. I long for healing. And in comparison, if I'm honest with myself, I can look at myself and say, okay, I'm doing better than he is. But I desperately long for hope. I desperately long for forgiveness. And I was suddenly struck standing in front of this man who most people reject with with compassion that was never there before. He is he is chained to sin. He is serving an idol that will do nothing for him. I can't do anything about it as a retail employee helping him do what he wants to do. But I can pray for him. I can stand aside from my disgust that suddenly comes up for, for with, with no warning. I can step away from the reaction of my heart that happens like that. And I can say, God, break him. I can say, Lord, heal this man the way that you've healed me. Please help him. Is there anyone in your life like that? What is your reaction? How will this good news affect your second reaction towards others, perhaps? The one that, that by the grace of God, comes after the sinful reaction. Our hearts should ache to be healed and for the healing of others. When God says peace to the far and to the near, especially now through Christ, His desire is that His kingdom should create a hunger in others to live in a kingdom 
where God has healed and redeemed his children. You and I, living under the reign of God, through the redemption of Christ, are called to create hunger for others, to long for the same healing that we have found at the cross. It is not moralism that rises above and causes a contrast into the evil of the world and makes other people guilty. It is a healing, it is a redeemed disciple who loves that God has healed me and creates longing in other people to see the very same thing in their own hearts. When we go from here this understanding of the subtlety of idolatry in the very simple areas of our lives can call us, should call us, should lead us to repent of even the most acceptable of sins. It should create within us a desire to bring the the longing of this kingdom that I was just talking about. It should create within us a drive to bring the, the knowledge of redemption, the knowledge of healing to people that most people in society, even me, even you, would be disgusted with. And it should cause us to mourn and pray for those who don't know Jesus. Maybe even those who do, but the ones perhaps that we have the most difficult time getting along with because everybody needs him. It is the holiness of God, the enoughness of God, over and above any other thing in our lives, that creates healing in your heart. Can you pray with me, please? Lord, Please impress upon us the deep need that we have for healing and redemption. Lord, create inside of us glorious celebration and praise because of the healing we've received. And may it not cause us to simply stop at performing and looking good. May it not cause us to have higher expectations of those who desperately need you because, Lord, they don't conform to our standards. But, Lord, may this healing and redemption create inside of us the drive to bring the knowledge 
of your supremacy over all the things that promise life to those who desperately need it. Because only you promise life and abundant life for eternity. We need your help. We need your healing. We need your strength to move on. We pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.